0: We are in the end of a series on sex, sexuality, and gender identity. So I want to make sure we let you know that if you're just looking at us, you're watching, or you're here for the first time, welcome. But we're wrapping this up with a Q&A session today. We've had three uh, messages on this subject, and there have been two webinars we've asked you to participate in, and we promised all along that we would answer some questions that have been given to us which we're gonna do this morning. So I wanna dive right in, but before we actually get to the questions, uh, I do wanna kind of restate why we're having this series and what we've tried to summarize in this series. Uh, The reason we're having this series is that it's an issue that touches people's lives. It's a serious, it's an emotional issue. It's a very personal issue. For some, it's it's an identity issue. And it affects not just our world outside these walls, but it affects us greatly in here as well. Um, Some people have asked me, like, why this topic? Why now? You know, you don't usually talk about this kind of stuff. Well, maybe I should more often. But um, my personal philosophy has always been when it's something that's so personal and it's so deep in our hearts that I prefer the personal conversation with people rather than trying to just have a sermon of, like, 30 minutes where I could sound like a foghorn, you know? I'm just blasting out, this is what scripture says, and people only get that segment of it when I would like to have the personal conversation first. I decided to do it this way this time because I have so many people who are affected by that. I have people in our church all the time coming to me, parents and students and young people are coming to me, or one of my staff uh, with questions about this, and they're personal questions, and it's just... It's too big to start with my, the way I usually do things, so we decided, let's do it this way, but still keep inviting the personal questions, okay? Because that's where it's really going to take place most of all. But even in this series, we tried to make a broad, um, um, a, a broad teaching of this based on what we do on Sunday mornings, which has been basically the biblical study uh, of what the Bible has to say about sex, sexuality, and gender identity, as well as, and Dr. Brooke um, has been leading this, is have two webinars that you could attend to get even more specifics and look at the uh, psychological side a little bit. I've asked her to be with me this morning because she's not only a licensed clinical psychologist, but a good Christian who's really involved in our church and is presently serving on the governing board, which is the highest authority in our church. So... As promised, we're going to jump into questions now. Um, But let me very quickly say, the position we've tried to display, the biblical position that we've tried to teach you is that um, when it comes to sexual activity, sexual behavior, uh, it is only condoned by God within a heterosexual monogamous marriage that's made for unity and love, okay? Everything outside of that, whether it's heterosexual or homosexual, is not condoned by God. But we've also tried to lay out the biblical position that now that we know that, what about those who are dealing with this? What about those who are inside the church dealing with this? As well as how do we deal with our communities out there that are dealing with this? And the posture that we're trying to get across is we have to take seriously the commands on love, Loving each other, because that's how we're going to show that Jesus Christ really died for our sins and came into the world to change our lives, as well as loving those who he died for that are even outside these walls. And so we've tried to present a posture that is, let's leave judgmentalism to God. He can handle that best. And let's figure out, now that we have the theology, what does that mean to make this place a safe place? And I've used that term often. And a safe place means that it's safe for everyone. For those of you who have very traditional values, as well as for those of you who all of this is new, you might call yourself more progressive, you might be dealing with this issue personally, but we can all be in this together because we're all in a body that I refer to as a family, that Jesus is the head, and we've got to figure out how to deal with that now, right? And it's what I've called a lot of times is the center of biblical tension. Yes, we have theology and the biblical teaching, which is absolutely crucial, but we also have the compassion and the spirit of Jesus to apply it, and we stay in the biblical tension and try to walk that road. So all of that is a quick summary of what we've been trying to do for the last three weeks. I've probably taken too long for that, but I thought it was important to uh, give you again because we can't reemphasize that enough, especially for those of you who maybe are coming for the first time. You can go back and listen to our messages Uh, on our website if you've missed them from the last three weeks. So I want to jump into questions now with Dr. Heather. And so here's the first one. And these are questions that you wrote to us, right? And all of these questions, as far as we know of, we've actually answered the person who wrote them. um, And some of them we've reserved to answer in this group because we think it's helpful for the whole church, Okay. So the first question we want to answer, you say we're a family. How can I trust my church family to be a safer place for sexual minorities, which I just stated. It's a great question. How can that possibly be? And I'm going to actually ask Dr. Heather if she would open this up. for you.
1: Sure. I want to give a brief overview of why I'm up here as a licensed psychologist. So I did study um, at a Christian university for my doctorate degree and the specialty that I focused in while I was in that four-year, five-year program was sexual identity and the Christian faith, wrestling and navigating between sexual, having sexual minorities who are trying to navigate those two areas and, and their family members. So I uh, was part of research projects and have spoken with, through clients and through research hundreds of individuals who identify as sexual minorities or gender minorities. I currently have clinical work, Uh, I do clinical work with sexual minorities, gender minorities, and their families. So I'm hoping that I bring their voice today, and that um, we may not have someone on stage, but I hope we do a good job at trying to represent that voice. I also wanna start um, and just recognize that we, Boyd and I, will be referencing our notes regularly because this is such a sensitive topic that we wanna be accurate and clear with our approach. And I, I know Boyd has mentioned this before in the previous sermons, but I just wanna take a moment to apologize for the moments that our church and the church members have not responded to sexual minorities and gender minorities um, well, or have not come alongside of you in the best way that we can. So to answer this question, right, we do want to be a safer place. We want to provide a safer place. We can't guarantee. Boyd and I can't guarantee the governing board, the leadership can't guarantee that the church is going to be a safer place because we can't monitor and we can't control every individual person here and every individual response that you may have. But what we are committing to as as a church leadership is that we are going to grow in sensitivity and awareness. We're gonna offer more informed and compassionate responses. We are going to confront bullying, harmful language, and harmful behaviors. That will be something that we, we are committed to. And as well as coming alongside as best as we can to be in conversation with sexual minorities and gender minorities and their families. We want to come alongside of you. So try to invite us us into your journey. We want to be with you in that journey. And practical ways, specifically practical ways, we want to implement these goals and objectives would be to continue training staff, offering groups for sexual and gender minorities and their family members, providing trustworthy clinical referrals for therapy and family therapy, ensuring language to be more sensitive, offering you specific book resources that we think would be helpful, discussing those books if you want to, providing opportunities for sexual and gender minorities to serve and lead in our church family, and most importantly, to be a better friend and follower of Jesus who accompanies you and sexual minorities and their families. And for those of you who have continued questions like Boyd, we understand this complex and difficult conversation we understand that it's going to take time to digest and things for conversations to have. So we want to be a part of those conversations, and we hope you invite us to be part of that.
0: So I'm actually not going to add much to that because she's answering for us as a church. I just, some of the key words that she said there, I just want to re emphasize compassion, yes. Bullying, no. Harshness, no. Coming alongside, yes, right? That's the atmosphere that we want to create here. So I'm gonna jump right to the second question. Is being gay a sin? Is being gay a sin? It's a great question because it helps us, I think, understand that that's a little too difficult to answer just in the form that it is, okay? And what I mean by that is being gay tries to encapsulate everything that's very complex, okay? Because being gay combines the attraction that a person feels, the orientation that a person feels, his behavior perhaps, his identity, his, very, his social community, and it's trying to collapse all of that into two words, being gay. So it's just difficult to answer just as it is. It would be nice to break it down into all those things I just mentioned. I want to break it down at least into two that I think are really critical. Gay behavior and gay identity. So is gay behavior sin? Well, we've talked about this um, all three weeks in that the only thing that is contoned by God and everything outside of this falls into sin is heterosexual uh, marriage, monogamous marriage, right? So if you're heterosexual and you're married, that's okay to have sexual behavior, sexual activity, right? Everything outside that, whether you're heterosexual or homosexual, falls into the sin category. So as far as behavior, this is easy to answer. Not easy to deal with, but easy to answer, okay? But when we talk about sexual uh, gay identity, we've also tried to, to reinforce the idea that we believe that sexual attraction is not a sin as long as it doesn't turn into behavior. Once it turns into behavior, and behavior can be anything from lust forward, right, to actual physical touching, activity, behavior of some sort, right, then it becomes a sin. But our position is that if someone is same-sex attracted, that is not sin. So what should be our posture? Well, I think this is an area that needs some patience and some understanding from us and some compassion because this is a new thought, so I know many of you, um, and so I would say let's not dismiss it outright, but let's be very patient in this area um, because we can have all the best theology we think we have in the world, but if we can't apply it in the spirit and compassion of Jesus, it's not going to do us much good except for our own inner self and inner being, right? 1 Corinthians 13 says, I can know everything. I can speak in a million languages and tongues and whatever, but I'm just an empty gong. I'm just a, a sounding symbol that has no effect on people's lives without love, okay? So, didn't answer it straightly, but I hope that I answered it more completely. Let me jump to the third question Is sexuality a salvation issue? Will my sexual minority friends be in heaven? Okay? And again, I'm gonna let Heather start with this.
1: So I'm gonna go back a little bit to what Boyd was just discussing. And remember, when we hear the category sexual and gender minorities, that those encompass, and it's an umbrella of many, many, many different sexual and gender expressions. So one of the key things that we need to adapt to and learn and apply is language. And learning that using the word gay to one person can mean something very different to somebody else who's gay. Um, For example, somebody who identifies as a gay Christian may choose to be celibate and say, I'm not gonna participate in any sort of sexual behavior. Uh, Another gay Christian may identify as somebody who says, "I'm, I'm okay, I'm affirming in my position, which means I think the Bible allows me to do that. So when you hear gay Christian, it's very complex and it's just one situation and one category that we have to ask about and we have to be clear on. So I, I'm encouraging us to become more familiar with the language that's used. Instead of assuming you know what they're, they're saying and you have a relationship with them, I would encourage you to ask, what, what does that mean to you to be trans? What does that mean for you to be non-binary? Um, if you have somebody in your life ask them those questions if you feel comfortable, just because they'll understand, wow, they're trying to use the language that I use instead of just labeling me. I want you to break down the labels and understand in the sexual and gender minority communities, labels are just one small description of their actual expression. So trying to use language that would help That's just my um, intro to, you know, what boy's going to answer. I just wanted to give you just a reminder about the importance of using language and understanding it.
0: So I think what we have to focus on when we say a question like this is this word, salvation, right? Salvation. And if this were not an issue, if we were just saying, how is a person saved? We would say a person is saved by faith. You put your faith in Jesus Christ, you realize that you're a sinner, you realize the you need him to forgive your sin, and you understand that that death on the cross was for a purpose, to die for our sins so that we don't have to, and that's the way that we can be forgiven. Now, I may have all kinds of things wrong with me in my worldview and who I identify to be, in my activities and behavior, as well as my thought process, but as long as I get that first message that I can be saved, doesn't mean the work is over for me, It means I can be saved. Well, I think this is the same issue here. Um, I never know, you know, a person's heart, as is on this, and your sexual minority friends. I don't know their hearts. But I do know if they really love Jesus and are trying to do what Jesus would have them to do and understand that the Bible is their role of faith and practice, then they're on the right road, okay? Um, There are some Christian fellowships, churches, that are entirely made up of people with same-sex attraction, of sexual minorities who identify as bisexual or lesbian or just same-sex attracted, right? And they have done what, what Heather has talked about, that they've said, you know what? I can't follow this into behavior. I know that's wrong because I really do believe the scriptures on this, but I can't change who I am, and I find this place to be a safe fellowship that I can do that in. And we're going to see all those people in heaven, right? Because they're being saved by faith in the same way that I'm being saved by faith. Um, And if we take this just out of the sexual minority uh, area, then we have to say, you know, there's a ton of different sins mentioned in Scripture. Sin always keeps us out of heaven, but once we come to Christ, it's the rebelliousness If we decide, okay, I don't care, I'm going to live this sinful lifestyle, whatever the sinful lifestyle is, that puts us back in trouble. But just because we fall to a temptation now and then, even if it's often, right? Anybody here not sin this week? (laughs) Right? Even if it's often, that doesn't take away our salvation, right? I mean, otherwise we'd be afraid to die every time we're right in the middle of that sin that we fell temptation to, okay? We don't believe the temptation is sin. We believe the behavior is sin. So hopefully we've covered that question for you. Next question. What makes someone a sexual minority? Does it come from culture? Are they created that way by God? Is it a choice? There's kind of three parts to this, and again, I'm going to ask Dr. Heather if she'd begin with this.
1: Right, So I'm going to discuss more of the science and the theories um, briefly, and then Boyd's going to touch base on God um, and whether this is a choice and whether God created us this way. So essentially, I'm going to summarize many books and years of research that there is no consensus on the causation of sexual orientation, whether that's heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual, or gender incongruence. There's just not a scientific consensus on the causation. But what scientists have confirmed and what they do understand that there are multiple contributing factors to to um, the understanding of why someone might experience these. Um, one of those, right, is biology, another is nature. I mean nurture, and the other is um, social and cultural. So with biology, I'm not gonna go through the details. When I mean biology, I mean like the genetics, genetic predisposition. Are we predispositioned genetically towards a different orientation or someone predispositioned toward a a different um, gender identity? But I'm referencing, or hormonal, maybe, um, so in in the gender identity sphere, someone might say "My, my hormones are different. What my hormones are is different than what my biological sex is. So that's what I'm referencing when I talk about bio- biology. I'm not gonna go into the different biological theories, but um, there's a lot of good books. If you're interested, I'd be happy to recommend them. And then nurture is also an area that we know has some impact, but again, it's, it's not the causation, but nurture would be like how you, were develop- how you developed um, your family structure, your family of origin, and the relationships and how that impacted you. And then lastly, I do want to talk a little bit more about the social and culture because I, I get a lot of questions about, about that. But I want to point out um, two concepts. One, that equifinality. Equifinality is essentially there is open... Um, it f- refers to the observation that there's open system and there's a diverse way to get to the same outcome. So we may have... Um, 20 individuals who identify as sexual minorities on our stage, and every single one of them probably has a different pathway to how they would say, this has been my experience. So you can conceptualize it maybe from going to the East Coast to the West Coast, right? If I'm leaving from Virginia and I wanna get to California, there's probably several different ways that I get to the same outcome, which is California. That's called equifinality. And I want to point out too the gen- generational divides that's something that we need to be aware of that um, there's been substantial shifts in perception and experience of sexual under sexual identity understanding, gender identity understanding in recent decades. So somebody who grew up who grew up in the 60s and 70s versus the someone who's growing up today, right there's different there is a different understanding based on what you were exposed to and the information that you had at the time. So we're trying to fill in some of the gaps, right? And just understand as we look at ourselves and we're evaluating how we approach the subject, where do you fall? What, you know, what divide might you have or what um, lack of information might you have based on your specific era that you were raised in? That's including both eras, right? We both have things to learn from, from one another. And then I just want to spend a couple minutes on the cultural theories. Um, Scientists do agree, and I've had many parents come to me or are um, educators and say, well, I don't understand. There's this increase in individuals identifying as LGBTQ. A lot of young adults or a lot of high schoolers, middle schoolers even are, why is there this increase within the last 10 to 20 years? And so there are a few theories but there are no conclusions. This is one of those, we're still researching it, we're still trying to understand. But there, one one component and aspect is the medical and mental communities, right? As we gain information, it becomes less of a pathology. So in, for example, in 1973, Prior to 1973, the DSM, which is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders, diagnosed homosexuality as a mental disorder. And that was removed from the DSM in 1973. So of course, that became a cultural shift that happened. So it's a point to recognize that the medical and mental health communities play a part in our understanding of this. Another one is the feelings of safety. So one theory is because the culture has become more normative with this subject, people are feeling safer and safer to talk about it and come out and have conversations. So is part of what's happening. People are just more comfortable. People just feel safer. And then there's the peer contagion theory where individuals are influenced by their peer group. So if one person's really into something then, and, and then a group is very into something, that, that impacts the peers. That's pure contagion, so one theory is that part of the reason there's been an increase is, is because of the peer group that's experiencing that. And then lastly, just the rigid stereotypes. When, when there's a cultural push toward, this is what it means to be a woman, this is what it means to be a man, this is what it looks like physically, this is what it looks like visually, this is what they act like, and you don't fit into those normative, rigid um, styles, then somebody says, "Now, especially with this, um, the culture we're in, if I'm not fitting into these two, st- if fitting into these stereotypes, these rigid stereotypes, then I'm going to explore what's here, what's available to me." So we have to also be careful that we're not we're not uh, focused on people being a certain stereotype or being a certain way, um, and, and I think just understanding that this is complex. And I hope that a a general overview has helped you understand that we don't have specific answers, but there are are theories out there.
0: So you're beginning to understand some of the complexities? (laughs) Because I'm so grateful that Dr. Heather is with us uh, through this series and also as a member of our church to explain some of this stuff. I want to just touch on uh, probably the down here created and choice just a little bit, Because we have said from the beginning, in all three weeks prior to this one, that Genesis 1 and 2 serves as the foundational purpose and divine plan of God for men and women that's referred to throughout Scripture, all the way through the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, okay? And when it says that he created them male and woman, that we understand that as being a binary system. There's male and then there's female, Okay. And we understand the weight of scripture, maybe not quite as clear, but the weight of scripture would say that refers to both biological sex and gender. They're just binary, male and female. Now, having said that, we also understand that when sin entered the world in Genesis 3, after Genesis 1 and 2, everything becomes warped. All creation becomes warped. It doesn't... Creation doesn't work the way it's supposed to. We don't work the way we're supposed to. We fall away from God. We get pulled in different directions. We're not doing everything he wants to. Um, Paul refers to it in Romans 7 when he says, woe is me, because I end up doing the things I don't want to do and not doing the things that I should be doing, right? And that pull has effect on everything, including our sexual orientation um, and uh, everything dealing with that that we've been talking about this during this time. So um, that's just a comment I wanted to add on the created part. But his divine plan still remains clear in Genesis 1 and 2. And the choice part, I I wanted to talk about choice for a minute because I wanted you to hear me say this, because I've talked about how choice isn't, um, it's too simplistic to say sexual minorities are that way because of choice, okay? That's just too simplistic. But I do want to make it clear that we're saying behavior is always a choice. When we talk about certain behaviors being a sin, whether it's good behavior or bad behavior, it's always a choice. I'm given this choice to do this or to not do this, and I make the choice to do it or not do this, okay? So that's clearly a choice. But we also hold to the position that attraction I'm talking about anything from lust onto activity. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about that urge that allows you to be attracted immediately to one sex rather than another sex. We do not believe that that is a choice. I think sexual minorities don't see this as a choice when it comes to attraction and orientation, and I agree with them. When it comes to attraction and orientation, I don't think that's a choice. However, when it comes to identity and behavior, I feel like that's a choice. So hopefully that answers some of these questions here. Okay, so let's pop to the next one. We understand that opportunities for baptism, membership, serving, and leadership are all questions for sexual minorities. You know, I hate to keep saying it over and over and over, but that's a great question. I mean, obviously all these are great questions, but this directly asks a question about where do we go from here? I talk about having a safe place. Well, what does that mean? Well, this is what a safe place is for sexual minorities. right? They want to know, can I be baptized? Can I be a member of pre Can I serve? Can I lead? Now, I wish I had a very concrete answer for you, but my answer is based on the fact that we're just starting this journey. right? Well, we've given you the theology and some of the understanding and the posture we want us to have going forward. But all these questions need to be answered. Now, will they be answered? Yes. As, be- as For our church, we will talk about all these things. Heather will be involved as a governing board. I'm going to be talking about it with my leadership team and my staff, right? Now, having said that, personally, if you have a question about this, you can come now to me, even if though I don't have the answers now, you can come to me personally or one to our staff, whoever you feel comfortable with, or to Heather, and ask these questions, like, what about me right now? And we can work through them. But I understand as a church, we have to answer these questions, and it's our priority and obligation to answer these questions and make sure everybody knows where we stand on them as well. Okay? Now, uh, next question. How can I believe in a God that doesn't allow all people who love each other to be together in marriage? How can I believe in a God that doesn't allow all people who love each other to be together in marriage? Okay? This is a great question because I I think it reflects a lot of people. A lot of people are saying, wait a minute. When you talk about sin, you're talking about something that hurts other people. You steal, you murder, you do something like that. But... This is just letting people live their lives. How can God be against that? And that seems so logical and makes so much sense, you know, that the God we want to serve should allow us to do that. But it gets tricky when you start to kind of parse the question a little bit. For example, what if I fall in love with two people? Is that okay? What if I fall in love with a married person? Is that okay to go after her, right? So the Bible has guidelines. We all draw lines. Like some of you have said, well, of course you can't do that, but what about this, right? So everybody draws lines. What we try to do is make sure the lines that are drawn that we don't cross are drawn by the Bible and not by just personal appetite or personal opinion, okay? I mean, all if I can speak philosophically a little bit, all philosophies and religions have guidelines. We have guidelines as a Christian. We say that Jesus Christ is the only name by which anybody can be saved. Because of that, people look on me when I say that as intolerant, okay? Well, I I have to live with that, but I don't change the guideline because the guideline is given to me my scripture, right? And if I'm going to be a faithful Christian, I'm faithful to that scripture. I didn't draw that line because that's what I feel. I draw that line because God and scripture tells me that way. So what I'm leaning toward is, you know, I'm very comfortable with my identity in Christ. Um, we could try to expand our guidelines. I don't want to do that unless the Bible allows us to do that. And if the Bible allows us to do that, I want to do it. So that's why understanding Scripture and God's intentions are absolutely critical to this. I'm happy that the lines that we draw are, written, are, are drawn by the Bible. I would hate to answer questions like this just based on my personal preference we would all be all over the place, and I don't know how we would ever agree, okay? So that's sort of how I would answer that question. Now, we have several questions that were asked um, that are, how would you respond if? Like, I would say hypothetical situations, except I think they're real things that people are facing. So we're going to start on some of this. How would you respond when a child walks away from God's design for sexuality and gender and they bring shame to their Christian family? First of all, let me say this. You know, we feel your struggle and pain with this, all right? I don't think people are just throwing this up there because I want to trip up the pastor, right? I want to ask him a really hard question. I think you're asking this because you're hurting and your family is hurting. In fact, all of these questions, I take very seriously for that reason, all right? But we're going to try to answer some of these how would you respond questions. And actually, I'm going to let Heather take the lead on this one first.
1: Yeah, so... we understand too, with a multicultural church, we have different cultures represented here. So for some cultures represented in our church and in the community, shame or reputation in the family matters a very great deal. And We don't minimize that, we respect that, we honor that your culture or someone's culture is different. And if we can also conceptualize that, that that's the case, right? So your family culture might be different from someone else's family culture. So in in sensitivity to that, I want to talk a little bit about the developmental differences. So you have authority in your child's life for a period of time, right? God-given authority from age's birth to potentially through 18. There's a certain amount of authority you've been given to instruct, to guide, to teach, to, to support and encourage. But we also have to understand that as Our children grow and become adults. We are releasing control and we're releasing authority. And we're helping them, hopefully, in those stages of middle school and high school to be given more autonomy so they can make decisions. But ultimately, their their decisions are between them and God. And it may feel like a personal offense or a family offense if they're not doing what the family is instructing them to do. But I want to try to encourage you to conceptualize that it is between them and God. There is a part of their decision-making, especially as they become adults, where you're now the influencer and not so much the authority and trying to give them the space to make decisions even when it doesn't agree with us or it may may bring um, a, a sense of shame onto the family.
0: And I just want to add a little bit to that simply because what Heather said in the beginning, we understand this is multicultural and this is a more serious question for some of you coming from some cultures than it is for some of others who come from different cultures. And we don't minimize that because even when we talk about a young person coming to autonomy, you know, for some of you cultures, yeah, but they're never totally autonomous, right? Where some of you are saying... Yeah, I can't wait till they come to autonomy, man. I want them to run their own lives, and I'm proud because I made them independent, right? So there's differences here that we need to walk through. So we don't want to minimize those differences, and even though I said it before, I'm going to say it again, a personal conversation, if your family, your culture is struggling with this, come and see us and talk to this because we don't just want to answer a generic question. We want to meet your needs, okay? So another, how would you respond if... How would you respond to a same-sex couple who has invited me to their wedding? Maybe I would respond whether it's someone you just know casually or even if it's in your family, Heather, because, again, I'll let you start.
1: Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm going to pull a Jesus move where he answered a question with a question. And really, in answering the question, I have several questions that I sort through when I'm, I'm making that decision personally, or maybe I'm um, counseling somebody who's working through that question. I, I simply start thinking, well, are they Christians? Are they non-believers? Are both, are both people, where, where are they at in their faith? And then also, what's my relationship with them? Are, are they my child? Are they an extended family? Are they a best friend? Or they somebody I know casually from work? Um, my response to, to attending a wedding might depend on that answer between those questions together. But in general, my general approach is I consider the cost of that decision. So the question I ask myself, and maybe one of the questions you can leave here with, is counting the cost. Is, is me not attending and, or me attending, what's the cost related to that decision? And for, for my position or my posture towards this is that God didn't intend for fathers and mothers and sisters and brothers to reject uh, sexual minorities to say, I don't, want, I don't want to be a part of there. You may not agree with the ceremony, you may not agree, but think through, is my one day of a right decision, my, my, my position to, to be right, worth the potential consequence of long-term and longevity influence and in relationship in this person's life? And there's a book called Guiding Families by Bill Henson, and he shares the story of a woman named Aubrey. And Aubrey had uh, a son who was in a relationship for 10 years with his same-sex partner. He invited his parents to the wedding. She sought evangelical counsel, and she went to pastors and, and elders in the church and asked what their opinion was, and they told her not to go, that it wasn't honoring to God and that she shouldn't do it. As a result, her her son basically excommunicated her from their life. Um, they have no communication. They currently have grandkids. Uh, they adopted kids, and she has no access and no relationship with her son, or his partner, or the grandkids. And she reflects on that decision and regrets her decision, her initial decision, and even goes on to say that. Uh, some of the people who gave her that counsel now themselves have gone to their um, family members' gay marriages. And so she lives with regret every day for making that decision. And that's just one story. There's many, many stories of um, maybe you have somebody in your life where you chose not to attend and it made a difference. But for me, that's my approach. I think about the longevity of my influence in relationship with the people I love rather than positioning myself And I think Boyd and I've discussed this before. Generally, people in your life, if they know you fairly well, they know your perspective on the Bible. It's it's probably pretty clear to them where you stand. Um, I had a friend who said to me, I know where you stand on the Bible. You don't need to tell me. Um, And we continue to have a relationship, even though she identifies as a Christian and gay. So I think understanding, and that's generally my, my approach is to say, I'm going to choose the relationship in a longer season of influence, and I don't necessarily feel the need to reiterate my theological position in these relationships. Generally, people have that understanding. If they ask me, I will, but generally they understand that.
0: And I think all I can add to that is that there are scriptural, there are no scriptural clear guidelines on this. So I think the questions that Heather was saying, like, what's the cost? That's the huge question. And you can ask it as a kind of an either or. What's the cost? What's the benefit? And you might not even come to the same answer depending who it is. I mean, me, if it were a, one of my children, then clearly that child, we have been in conversation a long time. They would know exactly where I stand. And I don't believe I cut off a relationship with my child no matter what. And so I would definitely go to their wedding because I know they know where they stand, and they're not going to take this as condoning or not condoning. They're going to see, are, are, are you concerned for me or not, right? So if that's one of my children. If it's, one of, if it's somebody I only know casually, who may not even know my stance, I might not attend the wedding because I don't want the appearance to be taken as condoning. So it's one of those things where everyone has to decide for themselves. And again, if you need some counsel, you can come talk to us I want to take one more question and flip it to the last question, I think, if you can, because we're up to noon here. Um, Yes, how would you respond to this? If you have different convictions and beliefs than your parents? Great question, right? Because almost always this issue is going to be tension, because it is generational, right? I mean, you are going to have probably different convictions, beliefs, than your parents in this issue, but here's how I would answer that. I think that I don't know of any family who doesn't have different opinions between parents and kids over a whole range of issues. So as you would deal with those whole range of issues, you should probably deal with issues too as well. I think the difference in this one is it's more emotional, it's more volatile, it's more significantly generational, and so that throws a few screws into the business when you're trying to work through this as a couple, but I think... You know, Malachi chapter 4 talks about the hearts of the parents being drawn to the children, and hopefully it's being reversed. And I think that is a huge piece that you have to rely on. This is your child. We have to walk through that. I used a phrase, or were you going to use this? No, you I used a phrase. <laughs> I used a phrase earlier that I quoted this German theologian, you know, from... Uh, back in the 17th century, that in essentials, unity, right? And the essential in this question is your family. Your family, right? So that's what's important to keep, right? In non-essentials, liberty. It's not up here. I started to turn here like it was here. In non-essentials, liberty. So there's got to be a leeway because you all know that in your families, you're going to have differing opinions about a wide range of issues. But in all things charity, we never take that piece away. We never cut that last ribbon and separate the two, that we love our kids forever. So I don't know if you want to add anything to that? No. Just
1: essentially, like, instead of positioning yourself against your kid, my Hmm. position's this, your position's that, now let's argue. Take the posture of love and say, I need to be informed, just as maybe they need to be informed. But you set the model. You model the example of I'm willing to inform myself. I'm willing to say, let me listen to all they have to say, rather than waiting until they stop so I can defend. It's how can I learn from what they're saying and what they're trying to communicate to me, rather than just standing strong in my position. Take, model to them humility, model to them a learning position where you want to hear from them. And then ultimately, and if you you don't have unity, agree to disagree. And say, but we still love each other, and this is what it looks like to walk through life together, even when we may not may not agree. Yeah.
0: So I really want to end the service today just by worshiping, you know, bringing it back on the focus while we come. I think it's a real privilege that we've had to listen to your questions and answer some of these questions, and we're glad to do that. But the center of our church is Jesus. He's the one who's Lord. We worship Him for all He did for us. We worship God simply because he's worthy and we want to end on that note this morning.